I knew that clients, if my name was on the door, they'd always want to work with me and not the other team members because uh, they want to feel special, like they're working with the owner. So we rebranded to Modern Species with the intention of growing and, and bringing on more employees so that they could feel kind of equally part of this, like not necessarily owner per se, but that is something I'm trying to figure out how to do, but like, so that they could feel like they're building this with them and they can associate as a modern species just as much as we can. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. If you like our show, please share it with your network and leave us a rating and review. You can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. This week, we're featuring an episode of another podcast I was recently on called The Joyful Freelancer, where my friend Catherine prompted me to dig into some of my favorite social media rants, like how work-life balance is a waste of time, how I can't may actually be I'm scared in disguise, and how to design your life to be more fulfilling. I hope this conversation sparks something for you as you're thinking about your goals for next year. and welcome to The Joyful Freelancer, the podcast about mindset and meaning in freelancing, work, and life. I'm your host, Katherine Gustafson, and today I'm speaking with graphic designer and brand strategist Gage Mitchell, founder of Modern Species and Evolve CPG, where he helps better-for-the-world brands grow through purpose-driven strategy, design, and community. Hi, Gage. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. I'm excited to chat. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do to start out and also how long you've been doing it? I know you have quite a few projects going on. Yeah. As you mentioned, most of my projects all center around helping better for the world brands. So by better for the world, I just mean they're pretty much all mission driven in some way. They're trying to make better products. They're trying to build better businesses. They're trying to be better for people on the planet and so on and so forth. So rather than just trying to grow and make money, they're trying to grow and make an impact. The way I help those brands is across a few different things. You mentioned modern species which is a brand design agency where we help them kind of develop their brand or evolve it or grow it. And we do kind of some upfront brand strategy, naming, different things like that. And then we help apply that to their primary touch point. So for a product company, it's their packaging. For an online company, maybe it's their website. For companies that need to sell to other people, it might be like marketing collateral, trade shows, different things like that. So That's the modern species side. And then you mentioned Evolve CPG, which is a newer venture where I wanted to be able to help more people. And I know so I've been in this industry, um, the Better for the World brand space for over 13 years. So I know a lot of awesome people doing amazing things. And I've, I've just always been a community builder. So I've shifted some focus during the pandemic to try to build community in this better for the world brand space. And so I launched a podcast called Evolve CPG and an online community aimed at connecting those people. Um, So I can share my wisdom, they can share their wisdom, and we can all go further faster together. 
And let me just uh, interject for our listeners that CPG stands for Consumer Packaged Goods. Do you work only with consumer packaged goods brands or are you broader? We work with more than consumer packaged goods. I'd say it's uh, CPG is about 70, 80% of our work probably. And the reason for that is that we've worked with nonprofits and restaurants and foundations and financial companies, but a consumer packaged good company is constantly evolving and constantly growing and constantly launching new things. So when we take on a brand that works in the consumer packaged goods space, they just have so much need for design and branding services and you know website design and packaging and collateral and all that kind of stuff that they end up becoming the bigger and bigger part of our client base. But also because since they're scaling better business models and more sustainable practices, it's the best way for us to make an impact on the world, a positive impact. So working with those companies that can take it to scale. With that said, you know we're a sucker for a good cause. So we still work with like we're helping rebrand a credit union right now. And we're working with a sustainable architecture company to help them rebrand. And we work with foundations and associations to either help them with their brands or to launch programs. We do a lot of different stuff, but the podcast and community, we centered it around consumer packaged goods just because in that space, they have very unique sets of problems like distribution and supply chain and retail and all these kind of things that would kind of be lost on businesses that aren't in that space. And so I wanted to build a community that was felt like it was designed specifically for that group of people. Oh, that makes sense. Can you share some of the brands Modern Species has helped with branding? Sure. So like I said, we've been in business over 13 years. And over that time, we've gotten to work with some of what I would consider the best brands in the world. <laughs> Not necessarily because we designed them because some of them we didn't, but we've just helped them in some small way. But uh, companies like Organic Valley, which I don't know if they currently still are, but I know for a while they were the largest organic dairy cooperative possibly in the world. Um, but they have been around for a long time. They're kind of been on the original kind of wave of sustainable organic kind of uh, agriculture and products. So we've helped them with various things. We've worked with Alter Eco, which often wins best for the world kind of awards with the B Corp community because they just do so much. Their entire business model was built around connecting farmers to consumers in a way that gets them better pay and encourages them to set up regenerative agricultural systems and so on and so forth. But like you just in the end get to buy a delicious chocolate bar or something like that. I love their mint blackout bar particularly. Oh, nice. Yeah. That is a popular one. And have you had their mint truffles uh, or their so. mint truffle thins? So you should check if you're a mint Ooh, and chocolate fan, I they've got this. a few different products for you to try. Oh, ah, interesting. Yeah. So some other brands that we've worked with over time are like Mama Chia that makes chia seed beverages and products. And we've worked with um, Nutiva, which does a lot of superfood products like uh, hemp and coconut oil and different things like that. We helped build the Yum Butter brand, which people in the their nut butter fans might remember as being kind of a, a pioneer in the buy one, give one, buy one, feed one kind of space. And they also invented, so to speak, the multi-use pouch for nut butter. So you can kind of take your nut butter with you hiking or whatever else and not worry about messy jars or heavy glass or anything like that. Um, so We've worked with a lot of brands like that. I could 
keep rattling some more, but I'll stop there. Yeah, I was going to ask, that's all all of this has made me wonder, how do you work with them to, in the cases that you do do this, bring out their sense of what their values are? And how do you incorporate that into visual branding? Yeah, so I think for my philosophy is that mission shouldn't be this add-on. Like I think a lot of corporations, when this started becoming popular, they were like, okay, here's our core product or service, but you know what? The world is pressuring us to do something impactful. So let's add this little division or build a committee or something that can donate some money to some local nonprofits or something. And that's great. You know, Local nonprofits need money, but the type of companies we like to work with bake their mission into the core of their being. So what we help them do is just really clarify what that mission is and how it's relevant to their brand and how why it resonates with their target customers or consumers. And then we find ways to express that and communicate it throughout the brand because you know a brand is no longer a logo or something like that. A brand is like more like a movie. It's not a single image or a single item. It's a story that you tell over time. And your brand can develop as a character alongside the customers and other team members and employees or partners that you work with, they're also always going to be evolving and developing. So it's just this constantly evolving concept is your brand. And and you just got to find all the different unique, interesting, compelling ways to talk about not just how amazing your product is, but how much better it is for the world and how you take care of your team and so on and so forth. So those stories can be told through packaging, through your website, through your social media, through your supply chain, through PR, through how you treat your employees and so on and so forth. And we just kind of help them figure out the best ways to do that. Do you find that there's a tension in being a creative who's coming in to kind of corporate environments? And I don't know how big and corporate all of these companies are, but I imagine they do have hierarchies and kind of ways of doing things. How do you manage the tension between needing the space or the permission or the buy-in to truly be creative and then also kind of working within those established routines or restrictions. Yeah, that's a conversation I have somewhat regularly uh, with other creatives, but I, I don't know if it's because I don't consider myself just a creative because I've been a bit of a business geek since I was in elementary school because <laughs> my I come from a line of entrepreneurs. and. I've been a creative since I was a kid as well, because I come from a line of artists. So I've always seen those two as very compatible, if not like a perfect union together. So my entire career, I've always thought of creativity as a way to help businesses and businesses as a way to like express creativity to some degree. So I, I could just be approaching it from a different angle, but also mm-hmm. being a student of behavior design, I know that the main thing we have to do in order to get ideas passed through people who aren't like us is to build some empathy uh, with them by figuring out like what's what's important to that person and how do I explain what I think is important in a way that's important to them so that they get it and they buy in. For example, if you're trying to convince a chief financial officer to invest in some uh, really expensive thing and they don't see the value for it, 
then they're probably just going to say no because their brain works in numbers. And is it, is it, are we in the red? Are we in the black? Is this going to make us money? Is this going to cost us money, et cetera. But if instead that same possible idea, you might come to them and say, Hey, this is going to cost a little bit more upfront, but over the next three to five years, it's going to save us so much money (laughs) because it's a more sustainable practice or because it's more efficient or because we're reducing materials or whatever it is. When you pitch it to them that way in terms that they understand, then they get it. And now not only are they behind you, but now you're starting to teach them how sustainability and creative problem solving is actually good for numbers too. So you can kind of approach whoever you're trying to communicate with or whoever you're trying to convince and just think through their lens about what's important to them and how this project can help them with their goals as well. And therefore, you can sell your creative ideas into whomever. So for me, it's just about creativity is about like making it objective and tying it to relevant measures or goals of the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really joining the creative with the business side of things. Do you have a team uh, of employees or even contractors? Yes. Yeah, Modern Species usually has like a small core staff of full-time W-2 employees. And then we also have some part-time employees and some part-time contractors slash freelancers. Were you, did you used to be a freelancer? Yeah, that's how the, I think most designers and creatives always have some sort of freelance (laughs) side hustle going on. Even if you have a full-time job, you might be like freelancing on the side for things that you care about or just fun creative projects. So definitely throughout my career, I've been a freelancer and that's how the business started is I had just gotten back from some uh, life-changing travel, I guess I'll say. And I was hanging up my shingle, so to speak, just trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And until I figured it out, I was just quote unquote freelancing. I was just helping out other agencies with overflow work or picking up little nonprofit client projects or doing some personal stuff or, you know, donating some time here and there. I was just kind of doing whatever, whatever I could to just build some connections, build, build up the portfolio, keep myself busy, maybe make a little income until I figured out what I really wanted to focus on. And at what point did you become an agency? I've often think about the difference between a freelancer and an agency. And there are some freelancers who kind of subcontract and they wouldn't call themselves agencies until a certain point. Where do you see yourself on that? And I've totally seen the opposite too. I've, I've definitely seen freelancers who brand themselves as an agency and say we all the time and so on and so forth, but it's just them doing 95% of the work. So my my philosophy, like when I, I started out as Gage Mitchell Design, when I wasn't exactly sure what we were focusing on, and then I started pulling in other people. Uh, First was my then wife at the time um, who joined the company full-time because we were just getting too busy and I needed help. She said, well, I never get to see you because you're working all the time. So if I join the company, maybe I'll get to actually (laughs) see you. (laughs) She was the first employee and kind of came on as a partner. So it was all of a sudden a multi-person shop and we're starting to figure out what we wanted to do and who else we wanted to bring on the team. And that's when we decided me personally decided I didn't want to build a quote unquote agency under my name and force people to to work as Gage Mitchell or whatever. And then also mm-hmm. I knew that clients, if my name was on the door, they'd always want to work with me and not the other team members because uh, they want to feel special like they're working with the owner. So 
we rebranded to Modern Species with the intention of growing and, and bringing on more employees so that they could feel kind of equally part of this, like not necessarily owner per se, but that is something I'm trying to figure out how to do, but like so that they could feel like they're building this with them and they can associate as a modern species just as much as we can. And so that, like I said, we can scale the brand outside of me so that if I'm off on vacation, the clients are just as happy to be working with other team members. So I guess it's when the shift from freelancer to agency probably happens when the business is no longer about you and your skills or your output. It's about what the company is about and how the team can Mm -hmm. work together to fulfill that promise that the brand is all about. Right. Yeah. So I guess it is in part a matter of branding because if you're a solo person as a freelancer, usually you're working under your own name. You might not have thought that much about what your brand is aside from just, you know, who you are as a person. But if you go beyond that a little bit and create a brand that's bigger than yourself, that makes it easier to transition it into something larger. Exactly. And, and, you know, as somebody who's been a fan of business for a long time too, I was also thinking, well, someday, maybe if I did want to exit the company, I don't want people to have to be like, well, do we keep that old guy's name in the business or do we change it? Like, I just wanted to set it up from the beginning to where it was something that whether I was at the head of it or some employee that's been with me 20 years is at the head of it, it doesn't matter. It's still modern species. It still stands for the same things. It's still about the same things. You don't have to rebrand it. It's just uh, something that can live on beyond any of us. That reminds me of that TV show. It's French. It's on on US TV. It's called Call My Agent, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's about a French talent agency. And it's named after this one guy. And then he dies. And the agency is so well known by that name that they can't change it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, that would, I mean, I guess it's not a tragedy, but it's uh, not, not the best situation. Yeah. That's literally one of the projects we're working on right now is helping an architecture studio rebrand from the like 40 year old name or whatever they've been working under, which was the founder's name who no longer works there, but they feel like they're ready to like shift and create their own entity and put their own spin on whatever it is. So that I just knew those things were going to be something that came up someday. So I just figured I'd solve that early on and rebrand as a company so that no matter what happened, we were ready for it. Why did you choose the name Modern Species? The We bounced around a lot of different names, but we wanted it to kind of be something about how we were operating differently and how part of what we're trying to do is help companies and brands evolve into the modern times where consumers are putting pressure on businesses to do stuff that's better for the community and better for employees and, and not just self-serving corporate stuff. So, you know, by having a design studio that helps better. Sorry, the cats keeps meowing in my face. Uh, By having a design studio that's helping companies weave mission to their brand, we felt like we're helping them evolve to become what companies should be. So eventually after like kicking around a lot of ideas, the term modern species came to mind because not only did we feel like our goal is to be the modern version of designers, which is designers who care about impact, not just their portfolio and who are doing whatever they can to make the world better and help companies who are doing good things grow instead of helping companies that are doing bad things grow. And then also through our services, we were helping brands become a a better version of themselves that's more adapted to the current 
business climate. So modern species was therefore born. And to be honest, a large part of it was because we were shocked that the URLs and trademark and all that kind of stuff was available. We were like, sweet, this is totally ownable. So we scooped it up and... That's awesome. Um, speaking of, you know, how things are changing in the world of work and whatnot, you have a great LinkedIn profile. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you always have putting out all sorts of kind of pearls of wisdom. And a lot of them are about, you know, how people are working today and the d- meaning of work-life balance and things like that. So I wanted to ask you about some of the stuff you've posted. Um, one of those was work-life balance is a waste of time. I was wondering what, what you meant by that. And, uh, what are the implications of it? Yeah, so I've been a big advocate for kind of life design, uh, design your life to be more fulfilling. And as part of that, I've always just been frustrated that all these people out there who've worked their butt off and built something amazing, then like when they're more or less retired and have millions of dollars, they're like, you should all work on work-life balance. And A, I know that <laughs> they did not have work-life balance when they were building whatever just got them into the position that they're in now. So it's kind of from a point of privilege that they're saying that. But also, I put thought into like what it means to have work-life balance. And as far as I could tell, the people who were advocating for it were people who were working in such a way or with a company or in a role that was extractive. Like The work is so hard on you that you need to carve out time that you're not working that replenishes your energy and fulfills you and so on and so forth. So I've always thought like, well, what's the point of that? We may as well work in ways that replenish us. And so by working in a job that has nothing to do with your life, you're just wasting all that time working, not fulfilling yourself or making your life better. And by working in or by having hobbies and interests and pursuits and passions and knowledge and excitement around stuff that does not make you better at your job is kind of a waste of those hobbies to some degree as well. And in in this case, I'd say it's you know a better waste of time because you're actually working on yourself. So my th- theory is that the most time-saving thing you can do is to marry your passions with your work so that every hour you spend working benefits your life and every hour you spend making your life rich and fulfilling benefits your work. Another nugget of wisdom from your social is I can't is often really just I'm scared. You ask whether people are limiting themselves before they've even started with something. Does that come from feelings you've had in the past? Do you relate to it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could be just taking a stab in the dark here, but I feel like every entrepreneur or freelancer can probably relate to this in at least some way, uh, by which I mean, like Mm -hmm. a lot of us maybe have this fear of that might be like, I I can't charge more, you know, like this is something that business consultants over and over are always saying, double your prices so you can give twice the service and, or make more money or whatever. But like so often in our minds, we're like, well, I can't charge more because we make up a million excuses, but really what we're saying is I'm scared (laughs) to ask for what I'm worth because I might get rejected or it might feel awkward, right? Yeah. The awkward feeling, I think, is is like a bigger factor than I think many people would recognize maybe. Totally. Or another example might be if you're thinking about becoming a freelancer, but you're working in a full-time job, you might be thinking, well, I can't go out on my own. And it's like that word can't that you really need to take a close look at because 
Is it that I can't, or is it that I'm afraid it won't work out, that I might go broke? I'm afraid that everyone will think less of me if I don't like wildly succeed. And then what if I have to go get my job again? But like those, I can't aren't real, you know, like you can, you most likely can. It's just your fear trying to protect you in some way. So that post was more mostly just about getting people to question their limiting beliefs, um, which I think we all have a gazillion of them. I could probably write like a 20 page article on all my limiting beliefs, right? But the point is to question them. Like, is this thing that I'm saying to myself true? Or is it just something that my mind is trying to do to protect me from from scary stuff? Right. So much of it is invisible to us, I think. We don't know why. A lot of times we don't know why we're resisting something. I wonder, yeah, like I have an example from my own life. I was working with a career coach because I was in a, I had been freelancing for about seven years. And then I went back to a full-time job um, in part because I felt like it, freelancing was just too stressful to, to make ends meet and get a, you know, get stability. And I was in this full-time job, but I really wanted to go back to freelancing. And I didn't realize how scared I was yeah. about just taking that leap, even though I'd done it before. And I was working with, because it's career coach. And I thought I was working with her more to, you know, think about the logistics of how I would design my business or, or something, but it was really more an emotional thing. And she said at one point, okay, so let's see if there's steps you can take. Could you go tomorrow to ask your boss if you could go down to part-time? So you'd have part-time to freelance and start that back up. And I just burst into tears and I was like, I, <laughs> which completely shocked me. And I was kind of embarrassed. And yeah. I said, I don't know why I'm crying. And she said, it's the fear. And I was, it was like light bulb moment where I was like, oh my gosh, she's totally right. I'm just, it's just scary. And I, and like the emotion is coming yeah. out of my eyes, yeah. but it's, it's, <laughs> it's just fear. And I feel like I hadn't even under, understood that until that happened. Yeah. And I think it's really common for us to go around with all sorts of, you know, unexamined things that, that aren't clear to ourselves. Absolutely. And I think the advice your coach was giving you kind of resonates with this piece of advice that I got out of a book the four-hour work week, which I recommend in some ways, but I feel like it's an ethical slippery slope in the book. So, you know, take what you want out of it. Mm -hmm. But the idea is like, you don't have to be working hard. You can work smart. It's, it's the main takeaway. But one of the things that he talks about in that book is overcoming your fears. And so an exercise that he paints out is imagine the worst possible outcome <laughs> for whatever it is that you're thinking you want to do, like going out and being a freelancer or whatever, imagine it just completely crumbling and falling apart. And then as the smart, resourceful, you know, intelligent, you know, whatever, uh, I already said smart, so that's redundant, but <laughs> as the person that you are, <laughs> um, now think about all the different things you could do to make that worst possible outcome not not as bad to like walk back from it. And so maybe it's, you know, if I go out on my own and I lose all my money and I don't have health insurance and I have to like uh, sell my house or move in with my parents or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, you're, you're painting this nasty picture. But then when you actually look at reality and you say, okay, well, what could I actually do to make that worst case scenario? Not that bad. And it's like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out that well, I can take a part-time job. I can uh, reduce my expenses. I can just go back and get another job. I can 
sell some products. I can do this other thing. Like you, you start coming up with all these ideas for, for ways that make that worst case scenario actually not that bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe actually <laughs> it's not a bad scenario at all um, in most cases, unless it's like, I'm going to get sick and die or something like that. I think what that practice does is helps you get over that fear of like, even the worst case scenario you can get yourself out of in most cases, right? So, so what's holding you back at that point? And in a lot of cases, it's, we're talking about things with much lower stakes. So for instance, asking for more money when the next time a potential client comes along, it's pretty useful to think about what's the worst case scenario there. A little awkwardness maybe on your side, probably only, and then they say no. And then I guess the worst case scenario is they don't even try to negotiate with you. They just walk away. But then, you know, you've lost that potential client, but they weren't yours in the first place. Yeah, they <laughs> so weren't you kind yours of haven't lost place. anything. And maybe that's not the kind of person you want to work with anyway, based on that reaction. So you true, might have true. actually dodged a bullet, right? Yeah. And I've I've started to think more about how if some of the people aren't walking away, then you're not pricing high enough. If every single person you price to says, sure, that sounds good then you're not making as much as you can. And so yeah. it's actually like kind of the goal should be to price to price at the level where some people can't agree. And it's just a different it's a different way of thinking about it. Absolutely. I think I heard someone say once that if you're winning more than 50% of your projects, you're too cheap. Oh wow. I'm not that that <laughs> that scares me. <laughs> that was probably if I if I'm recalling like an ad agency where they're just constantly pitching. So I would say for more of like my type of business, if I'm winning more than 75%, then maybe I'm too cheap. And here's another nugget of freelance wisdom that I'll drop is when you have to say no to a project that's not ideal, you create space for a more ideal project to show up. By which I mean, if you're working your butt off for low dollar or not ideal clients, and then a great opportunity comes, you might not even be able to react quickly enough to win the project, or you might not be your full self when pitching it because you're, you've are you been working yourself to the bone for these cheap clients over here. Mm-hmm. So often like saying no leads to more yes, because you're just creating that space and building intention and working with integrity and creating that space for the better opportunities to come. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think creating a little space to find those better opportunities. Exactly. You need to spend a little yeah. time, you know, networking or there's many times what I've kind of signed in, on to say some of the Facebook groups I'm in for freelancers just randomly and I'll come across this great posting and end up with great work from it. And I don't spend a lot of time patrolling Facebook, but I have just enough to be able to dip in and look if anything's there. And if I were working myself to the bone, I wouldn't have those moments and I wouldn't be able to find those better opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. We all, especially when we're busy, we forget to market, right? Yeah. We're like, oh crap, I That's got so, so many true. deadlines and I got so much work that I don't have time to go on LinkedIn or write that blog post or send that email newsletter. And then what happens six months later when all that work that we were working <laughs> on is done, we're like, oh no, yeah. I have zero leads because I haven't been doing any of the work. So yeah, if you turn down some of the cheap clients or the lower budget work or the not ideal clients, you create space for your and time for yourself to go get the better work. And it's scary because you want to pay your bills. But from people I know that have been entrepreneurs and you know freelancers or whatever for 30 plus years, they mm-hmm. all say in most cases, 
unless there's some crazy economic disaster, somehow, whenever you create that space, something shows up. It's it's this weird, <laughs> weird thing that I can't put my finger on or explain, but like every time I get a little bit scared about not having enough work, opportunities show up. And I think part of that's just my hard work of constantly being out there talking to people. Part of it's just like you do good work and more work will follow. You know, maybe there's some spiritual thing to it of the universe helping you. <laughs> cosmic <don't> element. Yeah. <laughs> I always feel like there is some sort of weird cosmic cycle <laughs> where I'll I'll go through a couple weeks where like literally I have my inbox my inbox is so silent that I wonder if there's something wrong with my email um, app <laughs> and I'll be like I'll be like maybe maybe they aren't getting to me, you know, like the emails that I'm expecting from even even current clients is just something there'll be a lull and it'll freak me out. But then invariably after two weeks or so, it comes roaring back and it's like even more than before. And I'm getting all sorts of interest from, you know, word of mouth or what have you. And, you know, yeah. some of the projects I currently have pick back up or what whatever. I don't know what it is, but it, it n- never fails to happen. I've been doing it for 12, 13 years. And yeah. every time I get in that freaked out state, it means that things are going to become even better yeah. <laughs> really soon. It's It feels cosmic. Totally. And the important thing is to just over time, you realize that's the pattern and you don't freak yeah. out as much. Like, And therefore you can sort of enjoy some of that downtime and actually work on some of those things that's been on your forever to-do list or you know, write a new strategy or work on your website refresh or or whatever. Like when we were slow during the first part of the pandemic, we were like, great, we can finally work on our website. And you know what? There's this nonprofit we really want to help. We'll donate a bunch of work to them and help them rebrand and help them launch their new certification program. And, you know, we just made use out of our time that helped when the economy picked back up. It helped us be in a better position than when the economy went down. So mm-hmm. sometimes being slow is great. <laughs> you just have to change your mindset and like get over that fear. And I think I would also say it helps to make sure you're building in cash cushion. Like don't just take in every project's money and go and spend it. Like put 30% of it or whatever away for taxes, put some of it away for um, rainy day fund. And over time, you'll have enough cushion to like survive a three month lull. And once you can be working your butt off on getting more work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we just have a couple minutes. I wanted to ask you about one more last LinkedIn word of wisdom that you put up, which was strength can be weaknesses and weaknesses can be strengths. What do you say that means? Yeah. So I feel like uh, personality traits or skill sets or whatever are often very situationally uh, dependent, right? So Hmm. some people say like being really confident or, or sure of yourself is like this great strength, but then it's also a weakness in some ways because Maybe you're so confident in your own ideas that you don't look for other options or, you know, something like that. So I think it's it's all about the situation. Like for me, for example, one of my core strengths that makes me really great at what I do is that I've got on like the openness scale, I forget which um, psychology test you can take that kind of measures you on openness, but I'm like on the far end, like as open of a mind as you can get. And that helps me just connect dots and think about different ways of solving a problem. And like, I can look at any one thing and give you 10 or 20 or 30 different ways we can approach it. And that's great for being a creative problem solver. It's really terrible when it comes to making decisions (laughs) because like (laughs) 
even if it's just down to, hey, we need to get a new office printer. I'm like, oh my God, I can see all these different situations where what if we need an all-in-one? What if we need a, a like a flatbed to do larger scanning stuff? What if we need a printer that prints a lot of things? What if we need oversized? Like my mind just starts yeah. spinning in all the different scenarios and it makes it hard for me to make a decision. So <laughs> I like to delegate stuff like that because I know I'm bad at it. Or over time, I've been trying to get better at, is this a thing worth overthinking or is this just something that I just need to make a quick decision on because slow decisions slow up the rest of your company, right? Or the rest of your team or whatever. So just learning to recognize your your traits, your skill, your weaknesses and your strengths and understanding that just because that's a weakness doesn't mean it can't be a strength in another context. And just because this is a strength doesn't mean I should lean on it in every situation because in some situations that's going to be really bad, really toxic, really whatever, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for the fun conversation. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing future episodes. So keep doing it. Oh, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like the flavor of the show, search for The Joyful Freelancer wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>